This is Included, the podcast. Conversations toward a greater understanding of the inclusive love of Jesus. Unpacking the mystery and wonder of the Word of God for those seeking an affirming, equitable Salvation Army for others. Thanks for joining. We invite you to take a posture of listening and exploring as we seek together the good news for the whosoever. Welcome to Included the Podcast. My name is Chris Halliday. You may have already heard me introduce myself. We're a few episodes into the podcast series now. It's fantastic that you've joined us for this episode. Perhaps it's your first episode. Either way, uh, my name's Chris. I'm a Salvation Army officer in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, also uh, an out gay man in, in the Salvation Army, which is getting slightly easier Still a few challenges as we move through what it looks like to be an inclusive, affirming and equitable church. And that's actually where this podcast came from. So it's an initiative of the Included team, a group of people connected with the Salvation Army around the world who are all involved in frontline mission and ministry and are very passionate uh, about us being a movement that does fully include, fully embrace, fully affirm, and works towards a place where all are treated uh, with equality and equity, especially those who are gender or sexuality diverse. And I'm joined today by another member of the Included team, but making his first appearance on Included, the podcast, an incredible wise mind and valued contributor and in fact leader in the included team uh, mark thanks for joining us thanks chris for that introduction uh, i'm really flattered <laughs> great to be on the show yeah it's um, great to, great to have you and you're a podcaster yourself you've got a, a great podcast series that you and a few other uh, swedes put together that's right we have the venture 12 podcast which you can uh, find on any audio podcasting platform and that's a podcast which explores mission and uh, looks to support and help people engage and, and inspire them around you know the key big meta questions of our time and uh, what the church looks like and how we're going forward uh, and I don't dissociate from this because I think this is one of the most central questions uh, of our time of our age around the future of the church so We've had some great podcasts on our podcast, Adventure 12, which I think uh, link nicely with, with what we're doing here. Absolutely. It's yeah. Of, uh, yeah, you and I have done a couple now. One with Kathy Baldock, uh, which yep. was very insightful, looking at translations in the Bible. And just recently uh, with the Kaleidoscope team, that was, that was something else. Yeah, I would say insightful. I'd say they blow your mind. Make sure you go and listen <laughs> to those podcasts. Uh, Kathy Boulder, I've had to listen to it a couple of times just to allow things to settle. Uh, so, uh, yeah, brace yourself. But please do go and, and check those out. Yeah, I've come to learn with Adventure 12 podcast, it's not the sort of podcast you can listen to while you're out on a jog because I almost fell off a treadmill trying to stop and take notes as I was <laughs> hearing stuff. There's really meaty stuff you've actually got to be That's paying typical attention. you. <laughs> Yeah, it wouldn't be I've the got first. a picture of you running with a <laughs> It's good stuff. So what you said this is actually important to you is in the mission of the for the mission of the church. What leads you to that? What drives you to think that this is such a central uh, thing we've got to work through? Well, I mean, absolutely. I I always start from 
that point. I know it's a justice issue. I know it's about people I love, friends, you know, people connected to our community. Um, but when I get to the heart of it, mission is an expression of God. You know, God is ascending God, a, fl- a fountain of flowing love into our world. That's mission. Um, and so for me, it's a missional question. And, and, and then connecting that to the church, um, essentially, is, you know, I think about my children and my children's children. I don't want them to be dealing with the missional questions of around inclusion, around what the church is going to look like, how it's going to embrace uh, you know, marginalised communities such as the, such as LGBTQI folks. So for me, it's about what's the church going to look like in the future? What's it going to smell like, taste like, um, feel like? And ultimately, is it going to look like Jesus? I don't want my children to be dealing with what we're having to deal with. Um, so, so, yeah, for me, this is about building those missional bridges back into our world. Mm. Well, or joining yeah. where Jesus is already at. Yeah, and that's what we've heard from some of those other conversations too, isn't it? And it, what we hear through the team and, and the included team has put together a few webinars and conferences and we, we hear so many stories, powerful stories of Jesus already being at work and it's just a matter of acknowledging that and accepting it and coming alongside what Jesus is doing and where he's calling us to. That's right. Um, which kind of led us to this interview that you recorded for uh, an included webinar uh, probably about a year ago now, but looking at uh, particularly at this from a Salvation Army lens, from a, a doctrine and a theological perspective. So what, what were you thinking going into this interview? Well, I, I, absolutely. Uh, it was great to have a Salvation Army perspective. Um, I think it's needed. Uh, I mean, We've, on, on the show, we've got uh, Glenn O'Brien and Karina Woods from Australia. And I just say, what a great gift they must be to the Australian conversation. Um, so we, we had this, this, this is an interview with them. And uh, Karina's done some research into, uh, she's done some research. And Glenn's been uh, her supervisor, but he's, he's a pastor, he's a theologian. Um, and just we really wanted to have some folks who are perhaps thinking a little bit further than most of us have thought about these issues and how it connects to our Salvation Army tradition, scripture and, and our experience. So, so that was the heart of it. And, and so it's accessible for anybody because um, we know doctrine and theology can sometimes leave some people excluded. We, we, I think this podcast is great because it's very accessible uh, so wherever you are in your engagement with the Salvation Army, you'll 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 find some uh, some great stuff. Absolutely, it's uh, it's a long interview. It's it's meaty. There's lots of great content there. Really digging deep into our, our, our doctrines and our theology, and particularly interesting, you'll hear that that this hasn't come easy. That there is wrestling involved. That there is thought and deep diving involved uh, to 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 question. So we won't give too much away. Have a listen to the conversation and uh, stick around because afterwards we're going to be back. We'll have a a bit of a chat about what it was we heard and what it means and maybe how it can apply to to keep pushing us forward and keep us asking the questions. And, of course, we've got the now infamous included the podcast Fast Five for Mark. So stick around. But here's uh, here's Major Karina Wood and uh, Reverend Dr Glenn O'Brien. Well, welcome everybody to this Zoom online conversation uh, with the theme of changing minds, exploring the questions that were lifted up during the included 2020 event uh, through the lens of theology. 
and exploration and learning. And I'm Mark Cottrell. I'm an officer in Sweden, um, in the very south of Sweden. And uh, it's my great privilege today to be able to welcome and interview. I would call you friends, but I've only just met you. Uh, Glenn O'Brien and Karina Wood, who are all the way in Australia. They'll say a little bit about themselves in just a moment. Um, to help us explore uh, this, these questions through the lens of theology. So uh, I'm not going to introduce you guys. Uh, you can do that yourselves. But first of all, we just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much that you are willing just to share what you've been learning, what you've been seeing, and uh, uh, for you being prepared to encourage us on our journeys around these questions that, that matter so much to so many people at this current moment uh, in time. So uh, yeah, welcome Glenn, uh, welcome Karina. Could you just, um, before we start deep diving, could you just explain to us who you are? Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background and how you're personally connected to these issues of, uh, and questions around LGBTQI questions in Australia. So one of you, do you wanna jump in? Okay, so um, I'm Karina. <laughs> uh, I'm Karina. I'm a Salvation Army officer in Australia. Um, I've been an officer for over 30 years um, and I'm the daughter of officers. So I was raised in the Salvation Army as well. Um, I'm married and I have three adult children. And um, yeah, so I've, I've been around a little while. Uh, I came to this question um, really um, more profoundly when uh, the Australian government uh, had a postal vote on same-sex marriage and um, it was not a referendum but the federal government had said that they would uh, respond uh, or they would change the legislation according to uh, the response of the postal vote. So Australians were asked to... Um, to place a vote in regards to uh, allowing same-sex marriage. And at the time of the postal vote, I was just aware that I really did not have a good theological framework for making that decision. And, um, you know, I had, uh, um, you know, historic teaching, um, things that I had been told, but I really didn't have a good understanding for myself. And um, the discussion that was taking place in the media was mostly from uh, what is called the Australian Christian Lobby, which is quite a, uh, um, a fundamentalist, I suppose, uh, Christian movement here in Australia, a uh, political movement. Um, and so uh, the argument that they were putting forward uh, really didn't um, answer my questions um, and didn't really sit well with me. And so I was kind of faced with making this decision and uh, placing a vote and really unsure for myself um, uh, where I really stood or where I should stand uh, in relation to that decision. And uh, so after the postal vote, I, I you know, placed my vote, um, probably in a way that I wouldn't today, but I placed my vote and then um, uh, when the opportunity arose, I decided that I would... Um, study you know do some study and research into this question this theological question for me about uh where um about the inclusion of lgbtqi people and uh what that should look like you know 
should same-sex marriage be allowed and all of those sorts of things. So that was sort of the foundation for me, really exploring this question more deeply. What about you, Glenn? Yes, uh, my name's Glenn O'Brien and I'm a Uniting Church Minister, uh, but I've been employed by the Salvation Army for the last 12 years uh, in theological education. So initially I was at Booth College in Sydney where I was Head of Theology and at present, I'm research coordinator at Eva Burroughs College in Melbourne, which is part of the University of Divinity, which is an ecumenical university with 10 colleges from different denominational traditions, including the Salvation Army. I'm married to Linda. I have four children and four grandchildren. Um, I've been involved in theological education probably most of my adult working life, um, but also had 13 or 14 years experience as a pastor in one congregation and about 25 years of pastoral ministry as well. Um, my involvement with LGBTI inclusion, I guess it's been for me as to growing awareness, hearing people's stories, recognising that uh, LGBTI believers are my siblings, that they have exactly the same spiritual experience as I have had. The same grace of God is theirs. Um, and there's substantially, I, I came to the point where I could see no substantial difference between the knowledge of God and of Christ amongst my LGBTI siblings and my own knowledge of God in Christ. And in some respects, I saw a greater degree of grace, certainly more patience, more humility, um, more willingness to love in the face of persecution and sometimes hatred mm. than, I, than I think I would have exhibited under similar circumstances. So I've been given the opportunity to uh, talk about this question amongst Salvationists particularly and, to, and also in my Uniting Church uh, contexts. Uh, in the Uniting Church, once the uh, marriage law was changed, which uh, Karina mentioned just a few moments ago, we had to face the question of whether our clergy could officiate at same-sex weddings. Um, and so that was a, even though we're a fairly kind of mainstream Protestant church, evangelical, but in that progressive kind of way, some people would see us as a liberal church. We describe ourselves as evangelical and reformed. We're a merger of Methodist, Presbyterians and Congregationalists. Quite a diverse church, which indeed the Salvation Army is. Um, even so, it was a hotly contested and debated matter, but we did come to the conclusion that there are two views about marriage in the Uniting Church and that we would make provision for those two views and that we would make provision for same-sex couples to marry on church property. Uh, no clergy person would be forced to officiate at a same-sex wedding, but no clergy person would be um, punished in any way, censured in any way if they did celebrate. A local congregation can decide whether or not to host a same-sex wedding on their property. Um, and again, it became a conscience issue. There were all kinds of threats about if this happens, the church will be split. If this happens, we'll leave that, we'll lose thousands of people. None of that happened. Uh, and we've found a way to live with difference. And um, so that's been a good learning experience for me. Um, so, yeah, that's probably enough. That's great. Really interesting to hear. Um, before we, I hope we could hear a little bit more about those kind of things. But before we 
go forward. Um, you both know each other. That's right. Mm -hmm. Do you yes. want to say anything about that? Do you need to say anything about that? Uh, uh, well, we know each other through my research. Um, so uh, Glenn was the supervisor for my um, research. So I did a, a 12,000 word research paper on uh, the Salvation Army's Doctrine of Salvation and LGBTQI inclusion. And um, Glenn uh, uh, graciously supervised that work uh, with much you know, uh, gnashing of teeth, probably, <laughs> but but we got there in the end, and it, and it went okay. Did so um, yeah, it was a good experience. I did get a good mark. Yes. Really? Yeah, there was not, there was not a lot of gnashing of teeth as, at all, and it's it's examined externally <laughs> by two external examiners. So it was excellent work, and the examiners made that clear. Mm. And I think at the heart of, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Karina, but just quickly, at the heart of her research was this. Uh, question of dissonance between the Salvation Army's Wesleyan theology of whosoever will, you know, kind of a view of universal atonement that Christ died for all and, and therefore all are welcome, and, and then the practical reality where that didn't work for some people <laughs> in terms of their mm -hmm. full inclusion and it was picking up on that anomaly that was really at the heart of her research. Yeah, let's pick that up again a bit later. Um, and I've read the the uh, the research paper and it's it's really really helpful really interesting really good read for someone who is learning and journeying with these questions mm. so uh, so yeah thank you for that Karina uh, my question to you right now though before we do dive a bit deeper is uh, it sounds like both of you at some point along your journey have changed minds or changed your mind on on around these questions you know what was it that mm. you know provoked that kind of movement within you. Could you share something around that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I had had engagement with um, people who uh, identified um, as, you know, LGBTQI in whichever aspect um, throughout my life. And, um, you know, they were all just people, really, when it came down to it. Um, and I had a young friend um, who... Um, identified as I had known that young person uh, since they were a child and um, had known um, that throughout their teenage years they had had some really significant uh, mental health issues and uh, then going into their um, early 20s I suppose late teens early 20s then identified as transgender um, and I guess that that probably highlighted for me um, is a human face of the LGBTQI experience. Um, so that was sort of something that was playing on my mind in the process of this whole same-sex marriage debate and all of that sort of thing. Um, and then really my research itself just cemented some things for me that I was really exploring and, and thinking about and uh, you know, caused me to perhaps turn a corner even more. I would say, um, in all honesty, that I'm not completely there yet. You know, I'm still, uh, I still have my moments when I go, have I got this right or, you know, or not. Um, but for the most part, uh, um, I would say that I've, yeah, I've, I, I was sitting on the fence probably at the time of the same-sex marriage debate um, and I've probably jumped over 
now quite significantly uh, in these days. But there are moments when I'm just a little unsure. Yeah, for me, there are a couple of sort of penny dropping moments. Uh, one was the when I came to the conviction that sexual orientation is not something that is chosen. Um, mm. That was very significant for me because I can understand how a particular action can be deemed as wrong or sinful, but I couldn't understand how simply being attracted to people, <clears throat> you know, sexually attracted to people could be in and of itself wrong. It's not wrong for straight yeah. people. It's not something we mm. choose. I don't know a time when I, you know, no one ever says to me, when did you realise you were heterosexual? Nobody asked that question of me. Uh, and it's not a question I would be able to answer. This, the first dawning awareness of any kind of sexuality was a straight, a straight experience. And for gay people, it's their experience. It's not something chosen. It just is. And so that made me shift my thinking considerably. Um, and the other, another thing was, you know, the given scriptural texts that are often, you know, put forward as making it clear that the Bible opposes any kind of same-sex activity, they became increasingly less and less convincing to me. Um, also, I've still yet to ever hear a satisfactory answer to the question of why those texts cannot be put into the same category as texts about women being silent in the churches, uh, about slaves obeying their masters. These are also New Testament texts that come with, you know, apostolic authority, <laughs> and yet we have found a way to interpret those texts uh, by giving consideration to context and language and so forth. Mm. We live with those texts without prohibiting women from speaking in the church and without supporting slavery. So why can't we do the mm. same thing with the other texts? And I think there's no reason why those texts can't be placed into the same category. And so that was also a watershed moment for me. But more than anything else, it's been hearing the stories of people, as I said earlier, whose experience of Christ is very real uh, and who are no different from me. You know, their sexual orientation makes them different, but nothing else about them makes them different. We live in this evangelical subculture, at least I, you know, I, I did for many, many decades, within an evangelical subculture where something like um, homosexuality, quote unquote, is out there. It's out there in the world. It's something that people do somewhere else. And so it can easily be thought of as something wrong and sinful and some dark subculture and we just dismiss it. And we can assume that, you know, when people come out of that, they'll change and they'll become more like us. But when you realise that the gay people you know are not the ones out there, they're the ones in here, they're the ones who are your fellow Christians, they're the ones who are your pastor or your sister or brother in Christ, and they're not out there, they're in here, then that's also a shift, a massive shift in thinking and forces you to rethink the whole question. Yeah, that's so, so helpful. I just want to press you on something, Glenn. I was reading in one of your talks, uh, and I think you said it quite early in one of your talks, that um there is an evangelical subcultural aversion to gay people, which is often the real driver uh, mm -hmm. leading to rejection. 
Um, I'm just kind of connecting that with something you said earlier and what you were saying, but could you, do you want to elaborate on that? Because that, that caught my attention straight off the bat. <clears throat> well, you know, in the church for centuries, we've constructed this, let's call it a social imaginary, you know, a group, a communal way of thinking about reality. And in that reality, same-sex attraction is wrong and it's sinful. It doesn't happen among us. If you're holy, you won't have those feelings. So we deny that reality or we exclude that experience as something other. So we very much other that whole experience. So that's a kind of an aversion. We don't like to think about it. I think there's sort of even on a more human level, apart from the cultural mm. things. I mean, I grew up, you know, a straight kid in high school where it was considered to be fun to go what, what was called poofter bashing. You went to the to beats. I mean, I never did it, but I knew people who would go to these pickup places and and beat up gay people for fun. So there's this kind of ugly, violent, cultural aversion to homosexuality as something disgusting, something wrong. And straight men, for them, it's kind of almost for some straight men, it's very threatening to think about a gay man coming onto them or they're insecure about their own sexuality, you know, they might feel threatened by the whole idea of knowing a gay man. So there's an aversion there. We have to face that in ourselves. So whilst there's a lot of taking the moral high ground or, if you like, the theological high ground where people quote this Bible passage or that Bible passage or they will, you know, talk about the long tradition of the church and its moral and ethical teaching to condemn um, LGBTI people or inclusion, um, I think something that is often masking something else. It's masking this deep-seated cultural aversion. And again, to go back to those texts that I referred to before, if you can make room for women speaking in the church, if you can make room to condemn slavery, which a New Testament, you know, slavery was a New Testament reality. Now, okay, it wasn't 18th century Atlantic slavery. It was a different kind of institution. We know that. But Christianity did come to reject it in time. If you can accept those texts but still not find a way to welcome your LGBTI siblings into the church on the basis of a handful of other texts, then, again, something is going on other than a pure theological stance, a pure biblical stance, and I think it is this deep-seated cultural aversion. So what I think we need in the evangelical churches is a new kind of social imaginary. Can we imagine a church that is fully inclusive, can we imagine saved, sanctified gay Christians among us? And when I debated this in the, in the Uniting Church at the 18th Assembly when we debated this, I deliberately chose to use evangelical language because there are plenty of liberal, progressive Christians in the Uniting Church who would argue it from a very extreme progressive point of view. But I wanted to use the language of the evangelical culture that I was familiar with you know, these people are justified, they are sanctified, they have the witness of the Spirit that they are children of God, they know their sins are forgiven, they are moving towards maturity in Christ. Um, how can such people be denied the full embrace of the church? So on the basis of Christian experience, um, you know, that, that's prof that pro has the gospel and the experience of the gospel profoundly at its centre, I think evangelical theology actually drives us toward inclusion. At least that's what I've tried to argue.
That's really interesting. I just uh, at this point, I think it'd be good, maybe Karina and Glenn, if you could just help us. Uh, most people who are going to be listening, um, I'm guessing, will be part of the Salvation Army in different levels soldiers, officers, uh, members, um, at all levels. Uh, we, we come from, Wes we have Wesleyan roots. Could you help us just to begin to understand some of the key ideas that, that shape this conversation, both in the positive and the, uh, and, and the, the struggles that some of the, those ideas cause? Yeah, probably uh, Glenn's the authority on Wesleyanism. <laughs> I'd like to hear what um, you had to say first, Karina, and then I'll add anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my study really looked at um, our Wesleyan's um, idea of salvation and, and what salvation means and um, uh, the idea that, um, you know, salvation is for the whosoever, but also there's this sense, uh, you know, in Salvation Army Doctrine, we, we have this idea that um, salvation is dependent upon something and it's dependent upon uh, repentance and upon obedience and, you know, continued obedient faith in Christ. And so there's this um, idea that, yes, salvation is for the whosoever, whoever believes it can be saved, but it's kind of conditional on some kind of behavioural modification. And in... Uh, in relation to LGBTQI people, um, the Salvation Army's position, I suppose, has been that that means that people must um, repent of their orientation or their expression and um, be be um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, be transformed in some way uh, that makes them different to what they actually are. Um, not sure that that really helps answer the question. Glenn is much much more able to answer that question about Wesleyan views. Well, firstly, I recognise that not everyone in the Salvation Army would identify as Wesleyan necessarily, and mm. I think this is particularly true in Europe and in Scandinavia. Um, so the Wesleyan identity of the Army is, is sort of stronger in some parts of the world than in others. Um, so, you know, I just want to note that. But... In terms of historically and in terms of formal theology, there is no real question that the Salvation Army does belong to the Wesleyan theological tradition. Um, you know, when we think about Booth having been a Methodist minister, he, you know, he's had his famous saying, there is one God and John Wesley is his prophet, which is his kind of riff on the Islamic creed. Um, and, uh, and, and the Handbook of Doctrine makes it very clear that the Salvation Army draws its doctrine from the Methodist and Wesleyan theological tradition. Um, so I think there are a number of things that, that this means for this particular discussion. And Karina's already touched upon the doctrine of a universal atonement, that Christ did not die for some elect few, but for all. Um, you know, in the, in the hymns of Charles Wesley, we have this wonderful, um, you know, he will often include outcasts, publicans, thieves and prostitutes, come one, come all. He's got this very generous kind of invitation that making it very clear that the gospel really is for everyone. And I think that's part of the Salvation Army's DNA, you know, go for sinners and go for the worst. Yeah. I'm not saying gay people are the worst sinners, but, you know, there's no one that can be excluded from the reach of God's grace. And so the Wesleyan doctrine mm -hmm. of prevenient grace is that God's grace, in fact, reaches every human being, that everyone born into this world receives 
the grace of God, the capacity to move towards God. Not that everyone will be saved, although, you know, if everyone is in the end, that's fine by me, but um, but that everyone can be, you know, uh, that God's grace reaches everybody. So I think also, sorry, Mark. Yeah, go, go, Glenn. That's okay. There's a, there's a certain way of reading the Bible as well as a Wesleyan. John Wesley's theology was very much focused on Christian experience and the experience of God's grace, his saving and sanctifying grace, God's saving and sanctifying grace. So, so you know, Wesley was very explicit about this, and so was Catherine Booth, actually, that mm-hmm. whilst we affirm that the whole Bible is God's word, we recognise that some parts of the Bible are more important than other parts of the Bible, and specifically those parts that talk about God's grand plan of salvation. And so, again, we read the Bible in a Wesleyan way, not in a fundamentalist way where every text must be given equal weight. So we have to ask the question about which texts of the Bible most fully speak the gospel. That's a very Wesleyan thing to do. We do find it in Luther, though, as well. You know, Luther famously said, sometimes the gospel has to correct the Bible. (laughs) Uh, You know, there are some things in the Bible that don't fully express the gospel, like a poison test for adultery, for example, or the imprecatory psalms which talk about dashing our enemies' children's heads against the rocks. They don't really speak the gospel in the same way that, you know, the greatest command is to love one's neighbour, to love God with the whole heart and one's neighbour as oneself. So I think there's this Wesleyan way of reading scripture that's helpful as well. And one final thing, John Wesley just defined sin in a very interesting way. Um, Whilst he recognised that sin could be defined as any falling short of God's absolute perfection, so in that sense we all need the atoning work of Christ and we all fall short of God's glory. For all practical intents and purposes, sin really means a willful transgression of a known law of God. In other words, sin is a question of rebellion, of a choice to act in a particular way that is transgressive. And going back to my earlier comments, sexual orientation is not a willfully chosen thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so being gay can't in and of itself be a sinful thing. And, of course, we have the... We have the thing about, well, it's okay to be gay as long as you're celibate, but maybe we can talk about that later and the fundamental injustice in that particular approach to things. But I think I've probably said enough for now. No, it's so good. Is there anything you want to add, Karina? I mean, maybe with um, any reflection on some of the doctrines that we have in the in the Sally Army. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking about, you know, Wesley's view of depravity and, you know, we have this term in our Salvation Army doctrine you know, that um, all have sinned uh, just, uh, you know, about, um, I can't remember what the actual uh, phrase is now. Um, yeah, that we, are, that we are totally depraved, that's right, and justly exposed to the wrath of God. And, you know, this idea of depravity sounds so, so horrendous. You know, it, it sounds like we're all in some way, you know, we often use that terminology in the idea of sexual depravity. But in actual fact, it's not talking about that kind of depravity at all. It's talking about the fact that um, the consequence of sin actually affects all of our life. It affects every relationship, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, our relationship with the world or with creation. Um, And so in that sense, we are totally depraved. We are all experiencing the consequence of that. Um, Yeah, so... uh, that 
that is expressed perhaps in the sinful nature um, and um, Wesley talks about about that sinful nature that uh, results in you know sinful actions um, yeah so we are we are flawed but we are not um, you know it's yeah it's just a different kind of view I think of this relationship this disharmony that we have with with others and with God and with the world around us and ourselves. In, in a sense, a Wesleyan view of total depravity is a bit of a theological abstraction because you know, by nature we are born with a sinful nature. Every human being is born in some way flawed and separated from God. But because Wesley's, Wesleyanism has this doctrine of prevenient grace, that every one of those flawed human beings that comes into the world receives a gift of grace from God, there actually is no one who is in a state of total depravity. So I guess the doctrine of total depravity is trying to underscore that human beings are helpless outside of God's grace. Mm, but then yeah. the good, the flip side of that is everyone receives God's grace. So you have to affirm total depravity as a kind of a theological principle. But when you're talking about lived experience, Nobody is totally depraved because everybody is a recipient of God's prevenient grace, which opens the way for the possibility of salvation and transformation for every person. So it's but not it's the same version of total depravity as you might find, for example, in Calvinism. So this opportunity for restoration and, re and restoration of those relationships is already made available through Christ for all people. That's, that's great. I just want to shift and pivot a little bit. <clears throat> We've already touched on it slightly, but are there any, um, <clears throat> are there any, um, I don't know, theological uh, reasons or, or ways we've been taught uh, in the Salvation Army around how we handle scripture, how we engage scripture that have become somewhat preventative for us in moving out from the, the kind of traditional views, entrenched views that we have? So I think that you might be able to say into that. Is that a hard question? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know whether there's anything Salvation Army specific. I think certainly if we include the army in the wider church, there are ways of reading the scripture that are less than helpful if we read the scripture in a fundamentalist kind of way or if we think of the bible as having fallen out of the sky complete <laughs> and we disregard you know the origin of the of the books of the bible in terms of their context and so forth um it's a bit like the book of mormon it's it's you know john smith is walking along and he and, and an angel drops a series of gold plates and he puts on his magic spectacles and he reads the gold plates and transcribes it all and bingo, you've got the Book of Mormon. But Christians have never understood the Bible as having come about in that kind of way and yet we sometimes treat the Bible as if it is this kind of magic talisman that has fallen out of the sky. Um, uh, and I think it's also worth noting, as many theologians have, that any reading of any given scriptural text that harms people, that promotes hate or division or bigotry or prejudice or racism or homophobia or anything else, it can't be the right reading. You know, it can't be a correct reading if it doesn't result in an outcome of love because God is love. <laughs> and mm. 
and holiness is perfect love. And so the way we read and interpret scripture, Jesus has to be at the center of that. If there's no God hiding behind Jesus and any interpretation of the scriptures that isn't in keeping with the character of Jesus Christ um, has to be the wrong interpretation. So I think the army has fallen into some of those traps, but not perhaps in a way unique to itself. Why, why do you think we all... I don't think it's a... Oh, go on, Chris. I don't think it's a theological position that we've taken either necessarily. You know, like, uh, you know, our doctrine says that Scripture is the... the um, constitutes the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. But um, our, uh, our understanding of that doctrine and the way that that's been formulated um, certainly gives scope for the interpretation of the, you know, the influence of the Holy Spirit and the interpretation of, of the church. So we're not teaching that scripture alone is, you know, the only way to um, to make these decisions. We're actually saying that there are, you know, there is the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the lives of Christian people who influence that understanding. But I think sometimes in the Salvation Army we don't understand our doctrine well, and we don't um, we don't uh, do theology well. Um, so we kind of can fall into those traps without actually realizing that we're doing so. Are you are you saying there are other forms of authority other than the Bible to make these decisions? Well, you know, certainly Wesley would say that there are you know other forms. Um, you know. Uh, that experience and, um, you know, the teaching of the church, um, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit are all influential in our understanding of Scripture. So, um, yeah, I think that there are things that help us to understand Scripture. And also we need to understand that we read Scripture from our own cultural lens as well. So uh, despite however, um, uh, however much we might think that we're reading the Scripture truly, and that what we interpret is absolutely correct, uh, we actually bring our own cultural lens to scripture, our own understanding, uh, our own experience, all of that um, bears on how we interpret scripture. And, and that's been evidenced in the way that scripture has been translated. Um, and certainly, you know, recent revelations around the whole use of the term homosexual in scripture um, really reflects uh, a cultural um, uh, influence rather than the reality of what scripture really um, really said yeah I in think it's interesting language. I think that's great I think it's, it's interesting uh, many of us have grown up in the world the, the kind of bible tells you so world um, mm. with, a, with a, a kind of idea that we need to kind of come to some kind of certainty over what we're reading uh, and what it's what it's saying uh, can can we ever be certain on some of these, or are all kind of interpretations somewhat inadequate? Uh, can we can we even venture that far to say those kind of things? I think we can be certain about many things. I think we can be certain about the really important things that God sent God's Son into the world to reconcile the world to God's self. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. For those who are Christian, um, that's at the heart of the gospel message, that God is love, that God's love reaches all. Um, 
you know, there, there's a there's a solid core of, you know, indisputable revelation, if you like, ideas that the Bible conveys to us that we can have a great deal of, you know, confidence in and that we don't need to back away from. Uh, but the idea that you or I can have an absolutely unassailable access to a correct interpretation of every passage in the Bible, I think that's that's a myth. Um, you know, it's, it's like the debate around the nature of truth. You know, many people say, well, if we're going to be uh, relative about truth, then anything goes. Um, but I think it's possible to affirm that there is such a thing as absolute truth. For me, truth is a person, <laughs> um, and that person is Jesus. I think there is such a thing as truth in the very real and absolute sense, but I don't think there is uh, absolutely reliable access to the truth on the part of any individual. Um, it's always possible that I am wrong. It's always possible that you are wrong. And so we read the scriptures not as lone individuals, but we read the scriptures in community. We read the scriptures with the church. And for some people, that is the end of the argument for LGBTI inclusion because they say, well, for 2,000 years the church has said that same-sex activity is wrong. So if we're going to read the Bible with the church, we have to be at the same place. But what they seem to overlook is that tradition is something fluid. Tradition is not something set in concrete. Tradition is something that is alive. If it's not alive, it's not a tradition. It's something else, you know, archaeology or, um, you know, it's, it's it's something else. Tradition is not, as Jaroslav Pelikan said, it's it's traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, but tradition is the living faith of the dead. And that living faith has evolved through the centuries as the church has thought communally. Many, many things have changed over the centuries, even over the short last hundred years in terms of the church's consensus in the reading of scripture. And that we shouldn't anticipate that that would ever change. Uh, so is this a, think, is the, are the scriptures reliable? Yes, but we read them together, not as individuals. And when we're reading them together, that means reading them, I, I would think, with the whole body of faith, um, not with certain persons of faith excluded because they're not considered to be, their voice isn't considered to be valued. So I think that that's, um, you know, something that uh, we have to also consider that are we actually hearing all the voices um, in the room or are we only uh, listening to certain voices? That's See, absolutely right. It's, it's so often it's, you know, cisgendered white males who are the ones who are in control and who make these decisions about the ways we should be mm -hmm. reading the Bible. And frankly, you know, Straight people have not thought as deeply about sexuality as LGBTI people have. We are not as in touch with the reality of our own sexuality because we haven't had to defend it. We haven't had mm. to dig deep to explore it. We've been in this privileged position of that's the status quo, you know. Anyone else is queer, strange and different. They have to defend themselves. So because... LGBTI people have been put into the position of having to defend themselves, it means they've thought very deeply about sexuality, more deeply than straight people have done. And yet it's the straight people 
with a fairly shallow understanding of things like gender and sexuality, who think in very binary categories, who haven't thought very deeply about it at all because they haven't had to, but they are the ones who often are the power brokers. Yeah. And so mm. opening up the room to let people in is <laughs> yeah. just a, you know, a first and necessary step. Guys, these are just amazing. Um, the, last, the last few minutes, some of the things we've been saying are so, so important. And um, just this idea of even, I, I don't think you said it, but I think you're insinuating reading scripture from the margins, uh, from mm, a, marginalized, a marginalized position uh, and humbling ourselves even to move out to that place um, mm. is, is crucial in going forward. So if, if we just arch now towards the last 10 minutes, um, Karina, I just want to, in your paper, you were, you were suggesting, I think there's two things. First of all, uh, I'd like to kind of, I mean, we're not really spoken much about Jesus, uh, although he's been with us, I'm sure, in, in this, in mm-hmm. this yeah, of course, he's been with us. Um, but of course, you know, the first words out of his mouth almost in Mark's gospel is the kingdom of God is here. This is the good news, all that kind of stuff. Uh, repent and believe. And of course, that idea of repentance changing um minds changing um spiritual direction um is is kind of at the core of the gospel uh, and the invitation to whoever mm. is at the core of the gospel and uh, sometimes we think it very much individually but what does it look like organizationally um repentance do we need to do that if we're going to move forward uh, as a, as an organization uh, i think the organization needs to do some repentance perhaps um, you know, certainly some of the ways that we've behaved as an organisation toward people um, who are um, on the margins, uh, particularly LGBTQI people, you know, has not been helpful. Um, we have we have harmed people in the way that we've responded. And as um, uh, Glenn points out, you know, that if we read the scripture and it te- and it, it and it brings us to a point where we're harming others, then we're not reading the scripture correctly. And uh, I think that, you know, that's something that we do need to repent of. And, um, you know, uh, if you, uh, yeah, in my paper, I talk about some of the ways that the Salvation Army has harmed LGBTI people um, in the past and uh, some of the experiences that people have shared in um, some submissions to uh, a forum that we had in Australia some years ago, uh, talked about that experience, um, the way that we have harmed um you know, society and turned people away from uh, away from God and away from the church uh, because of our, our attitude. Um, I've just been thinking recently about um, uh, the question of um, conversion therapy and, uh, you know, thinking again about research and where that might take me and uh, sort of saying, well, you know, if, if conversion therapy was actually such a good idea, and as you know, so helpful. Then surely that would bring people closer to God and and closer into the fellowship of believers. Um, but people who have experienced that would say that that's not the case. That actually their experience of conversion therapy has turned them further away from God and further away from the body of Christ. Um, you know, we need to be repentant for that kind of thing. And even today, you know, um, we're not. Uh, Salvation Army in Australia, at least, has not come out and said we oppose conversion therapy. Um, I think we should, and I think we should apologise for the way in which perhaps we haven't overtly done those things, but certainly subvertly done those things for people. 
Wow. Yeah, it, it has been interesting to see New Zealand has New Zealand Salvation Army territory have uh, officially rejected conversion yes. therapy, which is an encouraging mm. sign. Um, mm. I think repentance. Going to the question of repentance, I do think there has to be both individual and institutional repentance over the treatment of LGBTI people. Um, mm. When I was flying to Adelaide in 2017 in the lead up to the postal vote on same-sex marriage, which we had here in Australia, um, to address the Salvation Army's leadership conference, I found myself sitting next to a gay couple and I just kind of noticed that they, I figured that you could just tell they were a couple. And there I am going through my notes and my dot points about what I'm going to say to the Army. And I just thought, I can't let this opportunity pass pass by. So I leaned over and said to the guy next to me, do you mind me asking, are you guys a couple? And he sort of looked at me a bit suspicious and said, well, you know, I don't mind you asking, wondering why. And so I explained to him what I was doing and I said, you know, would you be willing to look at my dot points and of my talk and, you know, let me know what you think and, and is there something you would like me to convey to the Salvation Army's leadership? Um, I know you can't speak on behalf of your whole community. And indeed, I'm not here either speaking on behalf of the LGBTI community. It's important for me to say that I'm here as an ally. Um, so, but if there is anything you would like me to convey to the Salvation Army's leadership, what would it be? And his reply was very interesting. He said, we think Jesus is wonderful. It's the church we're worried about. Mm. And that's our shame, really. That is our shame, that we have been entrusted with the good news of the gospel but we're not representing Jesus very well at all. If people are saying we think Jesus is wonderful, but we don't trust the church, it's the church we're worried about. Mm-hmm. We're worried about. So that's what I conveyed to the leadership conference on on that occasion. But the flip side of that is that denominations have their official positions and they take their stand on traditional marriage and so forth. But at the core level, at the congregational level, there's a good deal of embrace. There's a good deal of inclusion. There's a good deal of more than welcoming, also affirming. And so there's there's that gap between the official denominational position and what actually happens at the grassroots level. And I, I put that down to a kind of a Christian instinct to love. You know, the reality is we have the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. And we might have this intellectual cognitive dissonance about the whole question of the embrace and inclusion but there is a voice within us saying love accept Mm. embrace welcome and that happens christians love the gay people who are in their congregations there are lesbian couples and gay men who their local church just love them and they don't make it an issue and these are not just in the salvation army but across across the board in churches with very strongly traditional stances the official stance and the reality on the ground are often different. Mm. So what I would say to people who might be thinking through this question are not quite there yet is, you know, trust that voice of the spirit. You know, there are times when you will think, oh, am I being, is this the devil's voice? Am I being, is it just reason driving me away from the truth or is it something else? I would say, no, it's trust that instinct. It comes from God. It is the instinct to love. The instinct to love mm. is never wrong. And it is the voice of the spirit. Yes. So I think there is hope. If the, while that is happening at the grassroots level, there's, there's a lot of hope. 
Can, can I just like turn that back to Karina? We, we're going to, uh, time is of the essence, but just quickly, I mean, you said in your paper, Karina, uh, and I, I'm asking this question because we've just been talking about the spirit, and the role of the spirit. Uh, you suggested that we need to enter into, um, and this very much kind of sits well within the context of repentance, like humbling down and uh, and 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 listening, uh, listening to the spirit. What? Why would you say something like that? It isn't. Is it? Why is that important for this moment? Um, well, I think that you know we we hold a position based on you know some theological idea or our own culture or whatever, um, when, we, when we listen to story and when we connect with people one-on-one, um, we actually discover something different. We discover uh, another human being who's created in the image of God. And um, so I think that listening uh, and, you know, hearing the stories of LGBTI people gives us an opportunity to make that connection. But I also think that there is um, a movement of the spirit, uh, and Glenn touched on this right at the beginning. You know, talking about his own experience of you know discovering that uh, his LGBTQI siblings uh, were just as um, uh, just as influenced by the Holy Spirit as he was, just as connected to faith as he is. Um, you know, and I think that. Uh, when we start to hear people's stories of faith, we start to hear from the spirit. What is the spirit saying? What is the spirit doing? Um, and uh, you know, I looked uh, in my in my study at uh, the uh, Council of Jerusalem, the early church's response to Gentile inclusion, and their response there was, um, you know, they have received the Holy Spirit in the same way that we have. So why should we make it difficult? Let's not make it difficult for them. And when we when we recognise that in our LGBTQI siblings that they have received the Holy Spirit in the same way that we have, then God has already spoken. God has already said this person is included in the kingdom of God. This person is your sibling in Christ. This person is a child of God. And, um, you know, we need to open our hearts to hear that and uh, to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church, that actually... Um, people who uh, identify as LGBTQI are uh, welcomed already by God into the kingdom and that is evidenced by the movement of the spirit in their life and uh, their faith stories will help us to understand that um, we don't listen to those stories. We don't invite those stories very often um, and I think that we need to do so. I think that's so helpful. Um, I mean, can you ever do good theology detached from people's lives and stories? And um, it's surprising looking at scripture, how often the, 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 how the importance of the spirit in the role of decisions, recruiting, uh, big kind of strategic decisions, um, decisions regarding the expression of church and, and all kinds of stuff. Uh, it, I, I, I guess it's the prayer of many, you know, that the authority of, of the spirit um, is given the right and appropriate space. Um, so just the idea of entering into a period of discernment and listening uh, is a great posture, I think, for us all at every level uh, to take. Um, just uh, I'm really enjoying this and I've cut in my mind I've said right I'm going to extend this interview five minutes, ten minutes, uh, just to kind of bring it home though. Um, what 
signs of hope are you seeing? Can you encourage us? I think one of the signs of hope is these kinds of conversations, um, that there is a broadening of this conversation in the Salvation Army. Um, you know, certainly in Australia, we're still struggling to have those conversations. Um, uh, but I see in the wider Salvation Army that they, that they are happening more readily. And there is certainly, um, uh, there is certainly, uh, you know, some voices, you know, speaking into that, into those spaces that are encouraging us to think uh, more carefully and um, be more open to the spirit in this conversation. So I think that that's a positive thing. I think that there are some uh, influential leaders in our movement that uh, are open to this conversation and, and ready to hear and ready to respond. Um, we're an international movement and we do have some struggles in that regard because we do um, have, uh, there are areas of the Salvation Army where um, it's not safe to have these discussions perhaps. Um, but nevertheless, I think that where we can, uh, we need to be having those. And I think that we are starting to do that more and more. So that's encouraging. It's slow, but it's encouraging. Yeah, I think there are signs of hope. I've already mentioned that the sort of grassroots welcome that many gay people experience in the Salvation Army. Um, in terms of our college here in Australia, our training college, which is more than a training college, but it's also part of a university, it's a theological college and we do more than officer training, but it's a very affirming space. I mean, all the full-time faculty that I work with sit in an, in an affirming place. Um, we might have a few of our adjunct faculty who are a little bit more on the conservative side, um, but it's a safe place for LGBTI people to study theology. And that's gotta be a great sign of hope and fully has the support of territorial leadership. Um, so that we have groups like the Rainbow Collective and the Progressive Salvation Art Salvationists who gather together on social media, you know, sort of off radar, <laughs> including some significant leaders in the denomination. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're finding support and encouragement. We have now possible to be a Salvation Army officer in the Australia Territory and openly be gay. At this stage, you're expected to be celibate. So that's not going far enough, in my view, but it's a it's a long way from where it was even five or ten years ago, you know, to mm. be openly gay uh, and to be able to openly state that, and still there's no prohibition from you serving as a as a Salvation Army officer. That's got to be seen as progress. Now, as I say, we need to go further because to expect celibacy is a wonderful gift if you're called to it, but if you're not mm. called to it, it can be a very big burden. Um, but still, that itself is a sign of hope. So I think, but the other thing is we have to put our hope in God and in Christ. If the church were a human institution, there would be no hope <laughs> for any of us. But the church yeah. is the body of Christ and it's God's church. And there's always hope while, while Christ is alive and is the head of the church. Amen. So we will get there. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to, I've got one more question at the end, but I'm just going to turn to anybody who's listening. Hopefully there's people listening into this. Uh, and so if you're together with um, a friend, a team, a leadership team, um, a small group, 
uh, we just want to suggest a couple of questions to reflect on over what you've heard. So the first thing would be uh, from what you've heard, actually, what have you heard? What does it mean for you? That would be the first question. Second question, was there anything exciting, encouraging that you've heard? Uh, the third question might be um, from everything that Glenn and Karina have been, have been saying, you know, what, what's been challenging or uncomfortable or difficult to kind of wrestle with or process? And then lastly, um, just an open question. Uh, what's the next appropriate step for you um, to explore, to engage with this issue um, and, and move, move forward? And that could be personally in your team, in your small group, in your church. Uh, we, we want to see movement. We want to see change. And, and it does start with having conversations and, and going and being unafraid to go deep with one another around these questions. So those would be four questions and we'll put those out. In fact, you'll see those kind of questions popping across the included 2020 event in different settings. Um, so that's just an offering from us, but our final offering to you, I'm just gonna pose this question now to, to Glenn and Karina before I say thank you. Actually, I'll say thank you now. I'll say thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Um, thank you for being available and uh, for, for journeying and um, asking the tough questions and, and, and offering uh, everything that you've learned so that we can move forward in our journeys. It's really, really good. Uh, thank you for that. But my last question to you guys is, um, if there's somebody who's listening, who's perhaps not affirming or, uh, or, or moving towards being open on these kind of things uh, yet, um, are there any, but, but is up for exploring, are there any tools, resources, um, things that might help in, in moving them forward in their thinking in the conversation that you, you perhaps would suggest? I think that, you know, the spirit is our greatest. Go on. You know, the, the trust the voice of the spirit within because that, you know, she won't lead you astray. <laughs> um, but also, you know, read the experiences. You may not have any gay friends. I don't know. You probably do, but you may not. But there are stories to be told um, and there are uh, plenty of testimonies. I mean, you could read Gene Robinson's book um, about love um, where, you know, that he's the first openly gay Episcopal bishop, not the first Episcopal bishop that Anglicans have always had gay bishops, but he was just the first one to admit that he was. Um, uh, Anthony Van Brown, an Australian Pentecostal, mm. in his book, A Life of Unlearning, shows what he has had to unlearn in his uh, move towards just accepting himself uh, mm -hmm. as a gay man. Um, Steve Harper is a voice in the Wesleyan theological tradition who speaks to the Wesleyan family of churches in a very powerful way, uh, coming from a very a relatively conservative background at Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, and yet uh, coming to a place of embrace and, uh, and, and affirming. So read those stories and take them on board and and hear the voices of those who have had to live their experience and take that experience seriously. At least set it alongside of the traditional views that you may currently hold. Throw all that into the mix and let it percolate away and see what God does. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's great advice, Glenn. And he's got a list of books probably as long as your arm he could list off, um, which, are, which are really helpful. Uh, you know, certainly for me, um, 
you know, engaging with people and just, you know, getting to know real people who have real experience, real lived experience. I think we live in a bubble. You know, it's like um, Glenn was talking about our our cultural, you know, um, bubble that we live in. And, uh, you know, there are um, LGBTQI people all around us. Um, we're just, you know, afraid sometimes to um, have conversations with people, but, you know, hear people's stories and um, connect with people and uh, and seek the spirit, absolutely seek the spirit of God and um, allow the spirit of God to, uh, to challenge your thinking um, and uh, to, um, yeah, and respond in love is, you know, has got to be your foundation to it all. In whatever circumstance, respond in love. Um, that was the great commandment, isn't it? You know, love others as you love yourself. So do that. And uh, you won't go far wrong if you respond in love. Welcome back. There was a lot there. You may have listened to it in two or maybe even three goes, and that's quite okay. You might choose to go back and listen again to Major Karina Wood and Reverend Dr. Glenn O'Brien from Australia, Salvation Army um, officer and a uniting church or Methodist um, minister and theologian. Mark, so much there. Where do we even begin? Yeah. Um, well, well, I, I mean, I, for me, if, if I go from me personally, is that right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, and, I, and I think people might find this important. As an officer, as a salvationist, um, you know, when we're thinking about these questions, always reflecting on um, how do we read the Bible? You know, how, how do we engage with Scripture that honours Scripture, that honours our tradition um, in the Salvation Army? Uh, so I think there's, I would just point people back to a moment in the podcast where Glenn helpfully weighed into some of those questions. And I think the question I asked was, is there something in our tradition that sometimes prevents us from moving forward in the way that we have been taught to read read scripture? Uh, and Glenn kind of brought up some helpful things that we need to be worried when we have fundamentalist um, postures when we engage scripture. Uh, and, he, and he talks about any and we do have that in our salvation of evangelical world yep. it's not everywhere but there are pockets of it or more than pockets of it uh but he said we need to be wary of that um uh, and stay clear from that if i could add <laughs> if i could add that i mean because that's not how scripture was ever designed to be to be read um yep. in that fundamentalist literalist way that everything is equally inspired that every single word is got equal value that's certainly not how jesus read scripture and i think he said keep jesus at the center is fundamental so we interpret scripture through the lens of jesus and and when Pete jesus was was going around we know people you know he was often saying you may have heard it said said like this but i tell you this so jesus himself was reinterpreting scripture from the old testament uh, and i'm often reminded that you know even the jewish tradition or not even the jewish tradition that's our what our inheritance they had like the Midrash, which was this whole collection of work that was wrestling with scripture uh, and interpretations and a really rich, I mean, libraries and libraries of people just like trying to work out. They were never scared of debating scripture, uh, but they also had the humility within that, um, that, uh, that, you know, there were no, there's, 
you can't be absolutely certain of absolutely every single part of scripture. It's, yeah. it's nonsense. Uh, yeah. And I think sometimes that's missing in our, in our, in our, in our culture. So I think those things are helpful. Um, but any kind of reading of scripture that ends up excluding people, I think Glenn said, uh, is not, it's not of, uh, of the kingdom and it's not, doesn't look like Jesus. So, you know, any faithful reading should always lead to love, embrace and inclusion. Yeah. Um, and that, that was what was really interesting for me is, is hearing Karina lean on that too and, and her, hearing her talk about how she actually came to this wrestling uh, uh, due to the marriage vote when, when same-sex marriage was put to a vote yeah. here in Australia and, and her initial response was to vote no, that marriage should be maintained as between a man and a woman. But then that sort of triggered in her, actually, maybe I've got to think about this. Maybe I've got to dig a bit deeper into, into looking at, at Scripture and also Salvation Army teaching. And that's what really interested me. And she came back, of course, to the notion of the whosoever, uh, something that we, we put as a focus in the Salvation Army. But uh, just around the time of recording this podcast, the Salvation Army in the Netherlands released a statement uh, and also a letter to Salvationists in that country around inclusion. And basically what that was saying was that they are aware of international positions, but that they are bound to, to rethink some of this. And they have been driven in part by their like you say, the the awareness of this is a missional issue and of one important to the church. Also, the laws in that country, which don't allow them to discriminate in any way, including uh, people being soldiers or officers or members of the Salvation Army, which is a, a bit of a, a, a different approach than uh, places like Australia or Sweden or the UK, where we might discriminate for those groups but have openness in terms of um, employees and volunteers and such. Um, so timely to hear that actually... I don't know, but if you, what I picked up from from Karina is that to to do such a thing as the Dutch are doing, and that we would like to think other territories will do, is not necessarily a break away from Salvation Army history or teaching or tradition. It's not right. a break away from doctrine. Uh, and then we pick up on on like you, what we heard from Glenn that actually it's not even a break away from Scripture. Perhaps I think there's something so in that as we reflect. I know this, there is some conversation about whether whether what the, the Dutch are doing or other territories are talking about might mean that they're actually moving away from our, our teaching, they're moving away from the scripture, but actually quite the opposite. Perhaps we're mm. leaning further into it, leaning further into understanding our doctrines and their meanings, leaning further into understanding of scripture. And that deeper understanding really only comes from this wrestling that maybe we don't mm. do a whole lot of or enough of lately. Yeah, well, I think that's, I mean, really interested to follow how that plays out and hopefully catalyzes, you know, other stuff across mm -hmm. Europe and the, and the world. I think, like, personally for me as well, I just reflecting back to my own journey of changing my position. It was like Glenn was saying, um, how, you know, those typical texts that we have that are often set up against, uh, you know, moving towards inclusion or, and all that, um, they just increasingly became less convincing yeah. <laughs> the more i studied and the more i began to like you know understand the context and the culture and and the whole scriptural narrative and, and so for me it was actually ah the bible is much more interesting than i thought and actually it's okay to you know to, to migrate to a different position yeah. uh, i'm not abandoning things I, my journey was very much i'm falling more in love with the bible actually yeah uh, so on a personal level, the Bible became was becoming more central to me the more yep. I've taken this journey. So, 
Maybe and, there's lots of people who echo that as well. I think so, and particularly for for LGBT people. And actually, you and I talked about this with um, in the Kaleidoscope podcast that we did the conversation for the Venture Twelve podcast. That often people like myself or other LGBTQ people are accused of again moving away from the bible and moving away from jesus when actually quite the opposite is true we have had to dig really deep and understand the scripture and fall in love with it often individually and separately from the church because we have been included excluded from the church and the bible has been used as a weapon against us for so long and we're told that we are abnormal or unnatural because of the scripture and we know deep down through our relationship with Christ, which has been formed in this adversity, that that can't be true. And so we've had to actually go deep diving and really exploring what the scripture says and and how it applies and what it means and where Jesus is to be found, where the good news is to be found in all of this. Uh, If I can jump jump in there quickly, just maybe changing tact a little bit somewhat, the question about um, how we read scripture or even how we move the conversation forward. They, both Karina and, and, and Glenn were very much, we need to read it communally. Yeah. So we always need to be asking who's in the room or who's not in the room. And what if these people aren't in the room, what are we missing? And yeah. what if we bring them into the room, what do we gain? Uh, and I think like, to take a journey of inclusion, you, you have to have the right people in the room right at the very beginning if you want to get to conclusion because we need those voices. We need those experiences uh, in terms of not just how we read scripture, but also... Um, as, as Glenn was saying, you know, a lot of the a lot of these folks um, who have been sidelined by the church or LGBTQI folks, they've had to think a lot more deeply about sexuality and, and those kind of questions mm. than straight people have. So it makes very little sense to place any hope or confidence in filling a room with I don't know middle-aged white Salvation Army officers. Uh, who, who are, you know, try, try to try to progress this conversation forward. We need to be so, so um, careful and wise in making sure that we start off in the right place. So get the right people on, in the room from the beginning. We should always yeah. be listening to the margins. Yeah. I think that's a, a posture of the church in general. And there's something to be said too around the way that we pray and approach, approach this prayerfully, isn't there? That also, I think, came up in the Kaleidoscope conversation. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I, I and I uh, feel as I'm, you know, even I'm going to say this, I'm talking to myself, I think it's such a challenge for me, it's a challenge for everyone. Uh, we very much need to recognise that theology, reflecting, thinking, conversation is great, uh, but the bigger element of, of what's going on is that God is present, God is already probably further ahead, the spirit is faithful to us and is always given to us. Uh, what does it look like for us to give ourselves to the Spirit? We often pray, come Lord Jesus, come Holy Spirit. What does it look like for us as a community, as people, uh, to bend the knee, if you like, and to submit to what the Spirit is doing in our age? And, and you know, is it too, bigger, too far of a stretch to say, let's pray that we're in the age of the Spirit? Um, what, we certainly need revelation because what I can see is that we're hitting roadblock after roadblock. Uh, in boardrooms, in meeting rooms. We, we need God. We need people to be praying. And I think like, in the Kaleidoscope episode, um, it was Megan Batts who said, if we did it, as much praying as we did talking, we would probably end up in different places around this question, um, not least because we will be meeting mm-hmm. the Lord Jesus in, in the moment and joining with him rather than trying to get him to bless what we're trying to further. 
Mm. That sounds like a very appropriate place to finish this little wrap-up. Thanks, Mark. Before you go, of course, the Fast Five. Uh, there was lots there. Well, people, as you're listening, I'm sure you will digest and reflect. You're welcome to get in contact with us uh, at the Included team. We're on Facebook, Included page, or our website, www.includedpage.com. If you want to connect or participate in anything we're doing or ask questions or connect with people in your local area who might be uh, wrestling through this, working through this, advocating for prayerful exploration, scriptural exploration for change. Get in touch. But, Mark, we have the fast five. Five questions we ask our guests at the end of each episode, and I feel a bit odd because you're not really a guest. You're a part of the team. Uh, You're a mate. But we're going to ask you the fast five if that's okay. Yeah. Here we go. Thinking of people who are gender or sexuality diverse, where do you find hope in the Bible? Uh, in Jesus, I have to say that. I know that's glib, sounds glib, but uh, Jesus always built and always found himself with the most unexpected people. And uh, I, I, I think we need to read Jesus our, our moment, our time. And, and if we do that, then uh, our communities and our friendship groups look totally different. Yeah, hope awesome. is in following Jesus. Great. So where do you see hope in the church? Um, in Holland. Uh, yeah. In local places, I think I think often higher up the hierarchy, the hope, go, unfortunately, is less and less. But in, in some pockets, in some communities, often communities that are in marginalised communities or, or multicultural communities, actually. Yeah. Where... There's maybe some reasons for that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole other episode. What does being a good ally mean to you? I think it means, um, well, standing in complete solidarity. As an officer, it means um, not being afraid of what other people might do to me or what, what how it might affect my future. Um, and it's taking the burden, perhaps, from a marginalised group and placing it on my own shoulders. Uh, that's always the way revolutions have started. So to, to be an ally is to pick up the cause and fight it rather than wait for the marginalised group to take that journey themselves and join in. So it's it's joining in solidarity. Is that, is that making sense? Absolutely. Powerful. If you had one message for the Salvation Army, what would it be? One message. <clears throat> I think it would be, um, come on, we can do this. We can do this. We need to do this. Mm. Uh, yep. That's not a message. That's more of a heartfelt plea, I think. <laughs> it can be both. Come on, please. <laughs> and last but not least, if you had one message for those who are gender or sexuality diverse, what would it be? Um, I think it would be, um, we really, we, we need you. Um, sorry that we've not listened to you as much as we should have. Um, you have much to teach us around many things, marriage, church, movement, mission, um you're so valued um, and uh, we wish it was different uh, but we'll do everything we can to to, uh, to 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 humble ourselves in that posture of listening i think um, i don't know if that's any encouragement I, I i just think that's what we need to be that's what we need to be done maybe i'm talking to the church rather than to you but uh, i guess sorry is probably <laughs> helpful <laughs> So that we're not further ahead. Mark, thank you 
for today, but for all you're doing in your part of the world and also internationally to keep this conversation going and to keep, um, yeah, championing, championing and advocating and, and being a remarkable ally who is taking this upon his shoulders and is uh, leading the way and is opening the doors for others uh, to have their voices heard. It's it's really valued and important and, and it is appreciated. So, yeah, thank you broadly uh, and thank you for today. It's been great chatting. Thanks for the interview you did last year and uh, we will no doubt talk again. I'm looking forward to it. And please, please do share this far and wide. Absolutely. Let's get the conversation going. Plenty of uh, included the podcast episodes already out with more to come in this season. We'd love to hear your thoughts too. So feedback and let us know if there's stuff you think we should be talking about or could be talking talking about. Uh, that's it from me. Catch you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.